This evening we're going to look at another one of the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Pharisee and the tax collector, in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through to 14. About a thousand BC, the prophet Samuel was sent by God to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. To look at, Saul was impressive, head and shoulders above the others. However, for all his impressive outward appearance, he was disobedient to God. His heart was not right before God, and God removed him from the kingship. Saul was succeeded by David, who was the youngest of eight brothers, and nothing more than a shepherd boy, when the prophet Samuel was sent by God to David's house, to his family home. Out of all the sons of Jesse, David appeared to be the most unlikely choice for king. Even that wise old man of God, Samuel, was fooled by outward appearances and wrongly thought that the eldest son was God's choice. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Coming now to our passage in Luke's Gospel, we shall be looking at two men who entered the temple to pray. One was a religious Jew, a Pharisee, and the other man was a publican or a tax collector. If you were told in advance that only one of those two men would be accepted by God and you were influenced by outward appearances, you might well guess that it would be the religious Pharisee rather than the tax collector who would be accepted by God. But in this particular case, you would be wrong, as we shall see. Let's... Look at the scriptures now, Luke chapter 18, I'm going to read verses 10 and 11. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. First of all, the focus is on the Pharisee and his prayer. Straight away you can see that he was bragging and he was blowing his own trumpet. Just look at that prayer. Look at it again there. I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. And so on. From start to finish, the Pharisee's prayer was one big boast about the good things that he did and the bad things that he didn't do. Little wonder we read that he prayed thus with himself. In other words, he prayed to himself. Even though the prayer starts with the word God, there is no sense of that Pharisee standing on holy ground There's no sense of him having a fear of God, no trembling in the presence of God, 
unlike the prophet Isaiah, whom we read in Isaiah chapter 6, when he had a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ seated upon a throne, he responded by saying, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. That was the prophet Isaiah, about 700 years BC. But we see none of that with the Pharisee standing proud and bragging in the temple. Even though the Pharisee said, God, I thank thee, he wasn't really thanking God for anything. Rather, he was patting himself on the back for not being like other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as the publican. Perhaps it was when the tax collector began to beat his chest that the Pharisee first became aware of his presence. And he then said, or even as this publican. When you think about it, it was an outrageous thing to do to pray that prayer. It is a prayer that says to God, I'm a good guy. Hell is a place for all the others, bad people, like the tax collector. But as for me, I deserve to go to heaven. Even though the Pharisee had never outwardly committed adultery, he said that he hadn't committed adultery, no reason to disbelieve him. But nevertheless, he had probably committed adultery in his heart many times, every time he looked at a woman lustfully. It is a prayer that says to God, I'm so good that I don't need your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm obedient to your law, so I don't need his perfect obedience accredited to my account. I'm not a sinner, so I don't need his sacrificial death. That is the mentality of all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of contrition and repentance towards God, they have a boastful pride and a self-reliance. They have to. It's inevitable. If someone, having heard the gospel of Jesus, rejects him, what does it say about that person? I'll leave you to work that out. They imagine themselves to be in God's good books, not through faith in Jesus and his obedience unto death, even the death of the cross, but through their own works. As for you, dear Christian, I don't imagine for one moment that you would stand up in this church and pray an awful prayer like that Pharisee's. You would not dare to stand up and pray, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like him over there. However, that doesn't mean to say that there isn't some of that Pharisaic boasting and self-righteousness in all of us that needs to be acknowledged in prayer and repented of. There's probably times when each one of us here, the Lord's people, we think we're pretty good. And let's face it, this church would not carry on without us. It would just fall apart. Let's have a look at verse 12. I fast twice in the week. 
I give tithes of all that I possess. One of the big boasts of that Pharisee was that he fasted not once, but twice a week. In Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 and 7, God has the following to say about fasting. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? That's God's idea of fasting. That you bring into your house the poor who are cast out and you feed them. The question is, was that the Pharisees twice a week fasting? Was it, was it done in the spirit of Isaiah chapter 58 verses 6 and 7 or not? Well, let's see what Jesus who doesn't look at the outward appearance as God, he looks into the heart. Let's see what Jesus had to say about the Pharisees and their fasting. You can keep your finger in Luke chapter 18 and just turn back a couple of books to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 and verse 16. To 18. Jesus teaching his disciples here and he said to them in verse 16, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites, speaking of the Pharisees, of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Well, we can see the Pharisee in the parable here. He is fasting and he's broadcasting it to the world. When he prayed thus to himself, he's letting everybody know how he fasts, not once, but twice a week. What's that all about? It's to be seen by men. It's for the praise of men. Also, we see him back in Luke chapter 18, we see in verse 12 that the Pharisee gave tithes of all that he possessed. The Mosaic law made it a requirement for the Jews to give a tenth of everything. For example, in Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30, it is written, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. However, like fasting, tithing can end up as being nothing more than a religious duty carried out in order to impress other people and to let other people know what a religious person you are. Or perhaps even to score browning points with God. God, I tithe everything. 
Aren't I a good so-and-so? However, the Son of God had something to say about the Pharisees and their tithes. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus exposed their hypocrisy with regards tithing. Let's have a look at Luke chapter 11 and verse 42. Luke 11, verse 42, the Lord Jesus Christ said, But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment or justice and the love of God. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. That's just one of the many things that the Lord Jesus Christ said when he exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They weren't wrong to tithe of their mint and all the rest of it. And Jesus didn't say they were wrong to. And and at that time, the, the Old Testament law was still very much in force. Indeed, Jesus, he came into the world and he was made under the law. And he fulfilled the law. But Jesus pointed out that whilst they were meticulous in in um, tithing those little things, they missed out on the big things, justice and love for their fellow men. Hypocrisy. The situation as it is now under the terms of the new covenant of which the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator, is that tithing is no longer a requirement. As the New Testament commentator Lenski pointed out, and I quote him here, one of the outstanding facts is that the Gospels mention tithing only three times in three condemnations of the Pharisees, all three being scathing in their severity. The three other references are found in Hebrews chapter 7 verses 5 through to 9 and are merely historical. Although all of the apostles were originally Jews, reared in tithing with not one word did any of them even intimate that in the new covenant the Christians might find tithing a helpful method of making their contributions to the work of the church. What this means for you is that whether you give to the work of the church or to mission, whatever, it is ultimately an offering to God and it is between you and God and no one else. However, if you are not trusting in Jesus, one thing you can be sure of, and that is that your giving is will be nothing more than filthy rags in the sight of God. <clears throat> Whatever you give should not be given with a reluctant heart or in order to gain favour with God. Rather it should be given cheerfully. For example in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7 the Apostle Paul said let each one give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly or of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver. I think there's probably many of us in here who uh, have heard of at least the last part of that verse. 
For God loves a cheerful giver. And I think that can be misinterpreted, unless I'm the one who's misinterpreting it. That doesn't mean to say that, that God will love you if you give cheerfully. It's not, God's love for you is not dependent on your giving. If you are a Christian, you, then you can be sure that God has loved you with an everlasting love anyway. Regardless of what you do and what you give, God loves you. He set his love upon you in eternity. Okay? So God is not just sitting there in heaven waiting for you to give, and when you give, he loves you. Well, waiting for you to give cheerfully, and then he loves you. That is not what it's saying. Rather, if you, as a Christian, someone who is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, if and when you give, and you give cheerfully, truly you give cheerfully, and not religiously, reluctantly or whatever, but you're giving cheerfully, as someone trusting in Jesus, that in itself is evidence that you are loved by God. And you're giving to the work of the church and it's just something you do. You're not proving anything by it. Again, you're not earning favour with God when you do that. Let's have a look at verse 13 now. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector were standing in the temple court. So that's not the big deal. Standing up, we, we, we needn't read anything into that. It was the temple court. People stood and they prayed. However, whilst the Pharisee stood proud of himself, of course, and he boasted about how good he was, we see that the tax collector stood at a distance. He stood afar off, so he stood at a distance from the sanctuary, that representation of heaven. He stood afar off. And filled with contrition, he beat his chest in self-loathing and in repentance towards God. Whilst the Pharisee was busy comparing himself favourably with everyone else, the tax collector had no interest in doing so. In stark contrast, he called himself a sinner, as if he was the only sinner in the whole world, when he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't have his eyes on anyone else when he said that. The one Greek word, hilaskomai, that has been translated be merciful in Luke chapter 18 and verse 13, is found in only one other place in the New Testament. I'm talking about the word that we have translated merciful in verse 13 there. Have a look at it again. At the very end, the, the, the Pharisee, the, the, sorry, not the Pharisee, the, the tax collector, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Does that make sense to you? That, that the Greek word that is translated merciful there is only found in one other place in the New Testament. You'd think it was everywhere translated merciful. 
or certainly more than one other place anyway. And that one other place where hilaskomai has been used is in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. It's worth turning to that. And I'll leave you for a couple of seconds to try and figure out which of those English words in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 is hilaskomai. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Well, I'm going to read it now. Wherefore, in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, this is speaking about Jesus, of course, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. You may be thinking, well, there you have it, merciful, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. There's Elaskomai. If that is what you're thinking, you would be wrong. You would actually be wrong. The word that has been translated merciful in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 is a different word altogether. And it basically means being compassionate. It's different. So, where do we find hilaskomai in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17? Well... In the King James Version, that one Greek word is to make reconciliation for. Can you see that there towards the end of the verse? To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. In the New King James Version, it's to make propitiation for. In the And also in the English Standard Version. version. And in the NIV, it is to make atonement for. So, coming back to our tax collector, who acknowledged to God that he was a sinner when he prayed, God be merciful to me a sinner. He wasn't simply praying to praying for God to show compassion and kindness towards him, although clearly that would have been in his prayer. Praying to God to show to be compassionate towards him. There's more to it than that. What he was praying for was for God to be propitiated or to be appeased in regard to him. And there is only one way that that can ever happen. When someone says, God be merciful to me, with the word that is there in that verse, in verse 13... The only way that can ever happen is as it is written in, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the Hilaskamai, Jesus, the propitiation for our sins. Jesus appeasing the righteous anger of his father. The wrath of God that is upon everybody who rejects his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's have a look at verse 14 now. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. In verse 14, Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And what that means is that only the tax collector was accepted by God. The Pharisee wasn't, the tax collector was accepted by God. Note that there are no varying degrees of being justified. It's not about one of them being a little bit more acceptable to God than the other one. It's not on a scale of zero to ten when it comes to justification. It's either zero or ten. There's no nothing in between. There, there are no shades in between. It's black and white. That means you are either righteous or not. Where justified and righteous mean the same thing. Being justified or being righteous before God is not something that you can ever earn. Like the Pharisee here with all his boasting about his tithing and fasting and all the rest of it. Rather, God declares to be justified all who are trusting in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins, the propitiation of their, uh, their sins, the one who has made God propitious, appeased the wrath of God. Therefore, your acceptance before God can only ever be in his beloved son. Finally, a lesson of eternal importance to be learned from this parable is that the sacrifice of God is a broken and contrite heart. It is a repentance that leaves no room whatsoever for boasting about how good you are or for comparing yourself favourably with others. It most certainly does not commend you to God. Rather, it casts you upon the mercy of a ho- of God as a helpless sinner. It is a repentance that is attended by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his life was completely obedient to God's holy laws, and who in his death took upon himself the, co- the, the curse of God's broken law for all whom he came to save. It is written that it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Therefore, each one of you, you need to understand very clearly that when you stand before the judge of all the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be no good at all being like that Pharisee boasting about how good you are. If you have not already done so, now is the time to reject any vain and fanciful idea that you have about securing um, God's favour by your own deeds. Trust in Jesus as a repentant sinner. Believe that he alone has appeased the wrath of God towards you when he bore your sins in his body and took those sins away. Amen.